Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Keith Williams, architect and urban designer, who is the founder and director of design at Keith Williams Architects in London. Keith, hello. Good morning to you. Well, thank you for coming on the program today. We might as well get straight to the chase. What does the word leader mean to you? Oh, leader. Well, um, for me, it's about giving direction. It's about uh, creating a vision. It's about uh, having some sense of how you get from where you are today Mm -hmm. to where you wish to be, whether that's a company or in my case, whether I'm designing buildings, reshaping the environment and so on and so forth. But having a, a, a clear vision, some sense of how you get there and having the vision and drive to take people with you mm-hmm. on that journey. And what is your personal leadership style? Oh, gosh. Um, you probably ought to ask other people for that. But no, what I try <laughs> to do is I, I try to hire very clever people um, who work with me or, and uh, who can support, can, can support the vision and collectively... Um, collectively, we we share um, we, we we share the vision, I guess, or at least I try to make people share the vision, so that it is a common collective journey to the end goal. So you try and form a real collaborative sort of workspace. Yes, um, but of course, in the end, you are the film director. Mm-hmm. You are the conductor of the orchestra. So well, to paraphrase it, Harry Truman, the buck stops with you. Correct. So you give it drive, you give it shape, you give it direction, and you um, take people with you on that journey. Yeah. Let's go back to the very beginning of your career, the start of your working life. Uh, when you first started uh, in work, was there any particular individual or circumstance that formed the way that you lead today? That I lead? No. do you know... Um, I think it's a discovery. I mean, you know, you, I suppose leaders, most of us would have a sort of natural aptitude. Mm-hmm. I suppose we tend to be slightly forward in our approach to things, not too afraid of the limelight and um, in, enjoying being there most of the time. <laughs> um, and, So did I ever go, I so it's by extension, did I ever go on any formal leadership training? I don't think I did. I think it's something that, um, you know, ability to organize and ability to take things forward, I suppose, something that, um, you know, came relatively easily, but of course you're always looking to try and improve and, uh, and enhance what you do. But was there any individual who, uh, made you the man that you are as it were? Um, I suppose in terms of um, immediate mentors, I used to work for a very distinguished architect, Sir Terry Farrell, and mm-hmm. he was very clear in terms of um, uh, of where he was going. And yes, I learned a lot from him, for sure. Now, within your own practice, do you have any formal mentorship programs or do you just take people under your wing? Um, we take people under our wing. We try not to be too formal. It's a very creative place. And so what I'm interested in is, of course, delivery, but actually in the end, what distinguishes us and what we do are ideas and creativity. So actually the creative juices in the human soul 
don't always respond particularly well to a kind of very um, structured right. uh, program. So I think it's about trying to be um, alive to whether people are contributing positively. And by that, I mean, not just the people in my own studio, but of course, we work with all sorts of other consultants, engineers and all the rest of it mm. and clients. And of course, the wider public who are in the end are our constituency because I make buildings, you know, that right. go into the public realm. So our, our, our final constituency is the public. So how do you carry people, people along that journey? Um, uh, not formally, um, although there are formal processes, I find they don't often very suit and we tend to be very bespoke in the way we approach these things. How has the landscape changed for architecture since you founded uh, the firm in 2001? Um, well, we've been through know, two recessions since then, or at least one anyway, and now we're going into another one I don't know. Um, the, uh, the landscape has changed enormously. I think it's become very much more complex. I think there's a great deal of, um, a great deal more transparency. Um, we've had great tragedies such as Grenfell and so on, which have obviously um, caused uh, a very uh, necessary revisiting of practices and regulations and so on. It's um, something that should never have happened and obviously mm -hmm. it needs to never happen again. So we have a, we have a sort of a moving backdrop. Um, but I think the, big, the biggest thing and the biggest challenge that we, we face in the built environment is a societal one which affects all of us is how do we continue to do what we do and tread much more lightly on the planet? Mm -hmm. How do we make our buildings, um, positive contributors rather than negative contributors in terms of their input into the environment. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work being done, but you know, do you know what, as a, as a society, as an industry, as a, as a, as a species, the human beings really are not dealing with the net effects of their, in inverted commas, progress. So, um, and the built environment is at the forefront of that. So we, along with others are doing an awful lot of work to try and really up our game so that we can make our buildings as sustainable as energy light uh, as we possibly can. So I think that's the big challenge. And I think if there's anything that's fundamentally shaped the difference over uh, between when I started and now it is that. Are there any answers for the built environment lying in the past? Um, oh, um, you can never escape history is gravitational poor, nor should mm. you. Um, we uh, look uh, constantly back at the, um, the great lessons of history. And there are some in terms of, in, uh, of how buildings worked environmentally. You know, air conditioning is only 100 years old or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. uh, mankind lived perfectly successfully in all sorts of buildings for all the time up to that point. And so I think we need to find ways of looking at how we used to do things in, in a kind of more um, naturalistic kind of way. So I think there are clues in that for sure. Like for instance, wool insulation. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Or natural ventilation and not air conditioning and building right. buildings so that you can, um, you know, Arab traditional Arab architecture, for mm -hmm. example, has been particularly successful in keeping out extreme heat, encouraging air flow through to cool and so on, all done in a traditional sense, using, you know, the uh, natural, natural effects. Nature will do a lot for you, work with it, not against it. So it's almost back to classical principles on that nature. I think that's right. Absolutely. Um, going back onto the subject of leadership, if I was to ask you to identify objectively the greatest leader living or dead, who would that be? Uh, I think that's impossible to answer because I think you, you, you know, the, the criteria are, are so difficult. I think I, I tend, I'm rather interested in history and I tend mm -hmm. to look at 
people who've had um, profound effect. So people like Gandhi and Nelson Mandela are obvious ones. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but um, it is it is um, it is very difficult to uh, I think select one particular person from the whole sweep of history but i suppose those are two that come to mind do you think any of the lessons learned from gandhi or mandela can be applied to the world of business um yes because in 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 a sense you see so they were not they were politicians and obviously great leaders and were fundamentally concerned with humanity in Mm -hmm. slightly different ways but that was the, the driver. And is, is business not just part, uh, part of the way that we as human beings all interact? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it gives people utility, employment, purpose, and it contribu- contributes at its best, something very positive to society. So there is a, a clear parallel there. Um, what they, those two taught us by example is that, um, that in, in their cases, in a very extreme way, you know, achievement is is a struggle mm-hmm. and do be prepared for um a hard grind along with the along with the successes now every day there are young people entering the workforce what's your advice to a young person on their first day at work um overcome um no, realize that this is, a, I suppose, I was going to say overcome initial concerns, nervousness and fears, but actually I think realize that this is a, um, the first step um, of, of your, um, of the next, you know, what, 40, 50 years of mm-hmm. working life. So remember it because it won't come again. Now, of course, a big part about being a leader in business is dealing with people and uh, people, unlike uh, nature, is is not infallible. Uh, they do have their own foibles and sometimes they're not always at their best. How do you resolve conflict within the workplace? Um, I, I think I think it is trying to create the conditions where it doesn't occur in the first place. But then if that has not succeeded, then I think it's just trying, it's trying to understand the perspective from both sides or multiple sides of any, any disagreement. Mm -hmm. And quite often there is no right or wrong answer. I think it's, um, it's trying, trying to mediate to achieve an accord. Um, but I mean, I, I suppose I'm quite lucky because everyone in my studio is highly educated, highly trained, Mm -hmm. and we all share, um, an enthusiasm, a thrill, and excitement for what we do, which is the making of the designing of buildings and the making of buildings. Um, so this, in our circumstances, internally is very rare. Um, the um, relationship between the construction industry and architecture and designers is well known to be sometimes harmonious and sometimes not. Mm-hmm. And I think um, trying to remind people in those circumstances uh, that disputes seldom solves anything and that um, reminding everybody of our of, of the core purpose of delivering a particular project um, should oversail any kind of personal dislikes or personality clashes and so on and so forth. So I think one has to sort of try and park all that and keep the idea uh, or, or keep the focus on the, the principal idea, which is the kind of the creation or the objective of the, the business, which is to create amazing buildings. Now, unfortunately, our time together is very quickly drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Keith Williams Architects? Um, well, I think exciting times and we've got a number of projects under construction. We're building a new 
cultural centre out in the west co- west of Ireland and private house and various apartment buildings going up. Um, so uh, that's very exciting. Um, obviously, I'm um, we have as a backdrop um, uh, coronavirus, which is seem- seeming to overshadow quite a lot of things. We hope that no one else suffers from this and mm-hmm. that it all beds down and we can get back to normal because obviously there are... Um, uh, uh, many implications of that, not just in trade, but obviously in human suffering. So we want to kind of, hopefully the authorities will bear down on that and, and solve it. And then we get that behind us and we can move on with mm-hmm. our core objective, which is to go on designing and creating um, amazing buildings. Well, Keith, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you. And I very much hope to have you back on the show at some point in the near future. Keith, thank you. My pleasure. That was Keith Williams, founder and director of Keith Williams Architects. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Uh, we're joined uh, today by uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, former Education Secretary. David, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's always a pleasure. But uh, since we are talking around the theme of Leadership, it would be a remiss of me if we didn't start with the leadership election going on in the Labour Party. Apart from, I'm sure you're delighted that a certain someone is leaving a post. What are your thoughts on it so far? Well, I think the party membership have got to make a very clear decision. Uh, are they in, in the stands watching or are they on the pitch playing? And if they want to play, then the two candidates that are in for the future are Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer. I'm personally backing Lisa because I think she's a brave woman with a tremendous amount to give. She's got really good, positive ideas. I like them because they're about building from the community rather than command and control from the centre. They're about a new form of social democracy and socialism rather than trying to replicate a failed past. And she can reach out to people that others can't. So... I'm, I'm giving her my backing. I think Keir Starmer is very professional, mm. very able, and presents extremely well. And I, I hope that one of those two uh, actually come through in the election on the 4th of April. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism, especially from uh, four uh, candidates a little further left um, than them, who've criticised even the last Labour uh, uh, government as being part of 40 years of Thatcherism. Yes, I think it's really unfortunate Uh, particularly when new MPs come in having seen large swathes of their colleagues lose their seat, uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, we we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, in the first 10 years certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the the future. And that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before. Sure start to nurture youngsters from the most moment they were born, transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better. And anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what chivalet is it that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives? I can think of two or three myself in terms Mm. of uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken 
out of poverty in those years. I can think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tougher Home Secretaries because the people that I cared about most were, on the whole, not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power of the big tech companies, which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a, a single nation just off the coast of Europe, and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in, but how, how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole, rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world. Those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years. Uh, An ageing population, Labour got 18% of the over 65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. Staggeringly bad. Um, And And climate change, which we all know is going to be either a big gain or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us. No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies, certainly. And speaking of your time uh, as Home Section in government, um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described earlier? Yes, I mean, it's on the theme of bottom-up, it was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who, in really, really difficult circumstances, were actually transforming the life chances of children by inspiring those children to want to learn, to, if you like, lighting a candle inside them. Uh, giving them a, a, a window on the world which created an inquiring mind and an understanding that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been mutuality and reciprocity. We, we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well. And I suppose that really comes down to... Uh, if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's fundamentally in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So you can have innovation, you can have entrepreneurship and creativity in, in business, you can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that, the contribution to... Uh, new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th- those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we are mm. dependent on each other. Oh, you can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin a term... Uh, uh, extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to giving your answer, David to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day basis. And without them, half of society wouldn't function. Completely. I I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's it's the glue that holds things together. It's people working and living and having their being together and recognising that they are dependent on each other. I've obviously met incredibly inspiring 
leaders in a different vein. I was very fortunate to have met Nelson Mandela three times. Uh, I met Bill Clinton a number of times, both of whom, in very, very different ways, were inspiring leaders. I've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives. Uh, Tony Blair famously said in the, his conference speech the year before he stood down as Prime Minister, and I, I knew exactly what he meant, he said the worst ministers are those who won't take decisions. And anyone in a leadership role needs to, A, know why they're there, what they intend to do with the uh, authority mm. that goes with being a leader and a manager, and then how to draw people in as a team to be able to implement it so that it's a team approach. It's not someone out on a white charger. It's someone who can mobilise, motivate, provide incentives for people to feel that they're part of the solution as well. Uh, and I think whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's sport, it's exactly those qualities that you need to succeed in any of them. Yes, it is. And if people recognise that and they have a clear idea themselves, they, they have and build, because you can't build, leadership qualities. They know how to manage their own time and their own emotions because we all, from time to time, feel like really losing our temper and... I don't pretend for a minute over the years <laughs> that, that I haven't. How, how to control your own feelings and emotion and how to bring the best out in other people's. How, how you work out that people who are really good don't threaten you, they compliment you. People who have complementary skills to you are really valuable. And I suppose the ability to listen, not just for its own sake, mm. but to listen because you are conglomerating, I suppose you would call it plagiarising, thoughts, ideas, ways forward from everyone around you. I often think that um, football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talked to the fans after the game. Well, everyone knows, uh, David, you know, you're a big Sheffield Wednesday fan. It I know. can't be easy having to hear the it, praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week after no, week. No, it isn't, although it's damn good for Sheffield, so I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment. That's very good about of you. Sheffield United in the Premier League, because it, it, it does change. It lifts the image of the city internationally. If you're Not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world. So that's good. I, I, I could cry sometimes. We can, we can beat uh, Brighton, Premier League side, in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them 2-0 in January. And then you can lose 5-0. And then you lose 5-0 at home to Blackburn and half the fans were out of the ground by, by half-time. What, what would a manager blanket say in this situation? I, I would have asked myself a very simple question. What went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field, they walked instead of ran? They didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at Leeds. They showed no drive and incentive to take hold of the game. What, what went wrong with the same players who'd played very well the week previously and if you can answer that question and there may have something may have happened who knows something during the morning before the game started something may have gone sour 
you get the answer to that question and you then start to ensure that we never, never do this again. Yeah, well, I'm a Chelsea fan, so I'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute. Um, <laughs> but I would like to pick up on another point you just made, actually, David, about choosing a strong team, people that compliment you. A lot of criticism that uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick, perhaps, the more ambitious, the more... Uh, 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 People, uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her. One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults, uh, he has been said in the past, he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Well, I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which, as we record this podcast, has not yet happened. Mm. And I imagine, I, I would be very surprised, if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle not just to get people in who he likes, but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world. You can pronounce on what you're going to do, but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it, if they're just toadies, by the way, and there is a tendency, a new mm. prime minister, large majority, got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them. But get able people in. I, w- I won't comment on some of the less able, but there are <laughs> clearly in the cabinet as I speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it. I mean, incidentally, anyone who won't be cross-examined by decent journalists on the BBC, changed their minds recently about mm. Sky, <clears throat> isn't worth their salt. If... Part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief, that you believe in it, and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa for a, a, an easy morning television program, get out of the business. You know, don't don't do without it. a doubt. Yeah. Uh, that's, and also, I should add that is how these uh, all stripes earn that respect in the first place. But there is a question, isn't I'm there? I'm trying to answer the questions. That's, that's <laughs> what I always try to answer the or questions. Or be very good at avoiding them. Either way. Um, oh, well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why. Not quite. Uh, <laughs> the, um, and I think one of the great things about uh, the Lise Castle especially is that um, it takes and talks to people again, from all different backgrounds, leading something very different, whether it's a charity, whether it's a business, whether it's in politics. There comes points, though, and David, you must have experienced this, whether it's leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary. When people are looking at you for leadership, where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us. There's a tenacity, there's a, an ambition, there's a desire to get things done, to make a difference inside you, whether you're in public service, the charities or you're driving a business that actually says this is why I get up in the morning so you've got to have something internal to yourself the the second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better you you can take pride without being egotistical there's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better and that's why you need both Sharp minds around you. In my case, it was special advisors as, as well as ministers. I pretty well picked my ministers. Sometimes Tony asked me to 
take people who I was a little bit iffy about and we had to meld people into the team. I was able to pick all my own special advisors and that really did make a difference. Mm. But in, in the end, you've got to like what you're doing. I mean, the, the, the people who are un, unhappy in their skin, they, they, it's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics, you, you're just in the wrong department. I was very lucky because education and employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do, and I got the job for four years. I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us. It turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Center mm. three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with... The development of positive citizenship, which also had a readover in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives either for the better or the worse. And you don't get everything right. That's the other thing you've got to recognise, which is why being part of a broader team, being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> because otherwise you blow with the wind, that, that, that's the, the measure and I think if we can share those traits, those experiences, those different elements through the Leadership Council, if we can get people from very, very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform, it will avoid people reinventing the wheel it will take people a lot further than the, the niche, for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment. Um, David, the very, uh, in a couple of minutes we have left, um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions perhaps in three things. What will happen in the Labour Leadership Contest? How will the next few months go for the government after Brexit? Uh, well, after we leave the European Union on the 31st of January? And where will Sheffield... Wednesday finish in the league? Lord above. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already in, indicated where my support is for the, the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January 2020, Keir Starmer has clearly got, a, got off to a very, very um, strong start. I think, however, it will be very much down to who can reach... Those parts of the Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post, who can be persuaded that what they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people, the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019. Uh, and that, that's that got to be Lisa Nandi or, or Kia. On, on the, um, the, the next few months, I think that the government will probably do quite well. I, I, I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though... Alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum 
going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my family and loved ones, is football and and politics? I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do, I think we could pull it off. But I am really reluctant. And I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blunkett, thank you very much for joining us today. God bless you, Jonathan. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.